Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, solemn remembrance. Marking the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the pandemic, we'll take a closer look at Canada's response with Federal Health Minister Patty Hyde. And from the front lines, a doctor's view on the past year, lessons we've learned and what happens next. And our panel of political commentators on the pandemic, sexual misconduct in the military, and the testing times for the Conservative leader. And we begin tonight with the one-year anniversary of, of COVID-19. More specifically, one year ago today, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. It's been a year of cancelled travel and closed borders, working from home, distance from loved ones, lockdowns and economic hardship and terrible loss. And it's not over yet. The total number of cases of COVID-19 in Canada now closing in on 900,000. There have been more than 22,000 deaths. But there is reason for optimism as vaccinations ramp up. Tonight we'll focus on the response to the pandemic, lessons learned and what lies ahead. But first, remembering the victims on this day. There were ceremonies across Canada in Quebec City, a tribute to honour those who died from COVID-19 and recognize the dedication of frontline and essential workers. Quebec's had more than 10,000 COVID-19 deaths, more than any other province. In the House of Commons today, national leaders spoke about the one-year anniversary and the loss and sacrifice. Every Canadian we lost to this virus will be remembered. Every shift done by a frontline nurse, every mask made by a Canadian worker will not be forgotten. We are stronger together, today, tomorrow, and always. Like many Canadians, we're frustrated by the slower pace of vaccines than elsewhere, but we want the government to succeed for the health well-being of Canadians, so that we can get our lives back to normal, so that we can address the unemployment, the inequality, and the strain caused by the crisis. We must also recommit as Canadians to ensure that our country is never again unprepared. We must learn the lessons, build capacity, and ensure a swifter and more effective response in the future. Plus de 10 000 personnes au Québec, plus de 20 000 à travers le Canada, ont perdu la vie à cause de la COVID-19. Près de 300 000 personnes ont contracté la maladie au Québec. Ce ne sont pas des chiffres. Ce sont des visages. Ce sont des personnes. Ce sont des présences qui n'en sont plus. We also need to think about frontline workers whose courage was incredible in this pandemic, who put their lives in front of this pandemic, who put their lives on the line. We are so thankful to them. But they deserve more than our thanks. They need to be properly cared for, properly compensated. And we will continue to work for that. We need, for however long this lasts, to bring out the best in ourselves, as we did at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we set partisanship aside. I love you all individually and collectively. I truly, truly do. Patty Haidu is Canada's Minister of Health. She is with me now. Uh, Minister Haidu, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, good to speak with you. It's good to see you again. 
Great to be with you, Peter. It has been a demanding, uh, emotional, and I'm sure exhausting past year for you and a large team of uh, people who support you at Health Canada. So I, 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 let's start with the past year. What, what sort of thoughts are running through your head? What are you thinking tonight as, as we mark this one-year anniversary of, of this pandemic? Well, I think, first of all, I, my thoughts, and I've been thinking about it all day long, um, really all year long, as you point out, it's just the extraordinary sacrifices that Canadians have made for one another. I mean, uh, people have obviously lost loved ones to COVID-19, but also Canadians have stayed home. They've uh, foregone earnings. They've changed the way that they work. They've uh, gone without seeing family and friends for a very long time. They've helped each other out. Uh, they've, 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 uh, you know, put off travel sometimes for what would seem like very important reasons, mm. and and they've let go of many of the celebrations of life. And so it's it's been a hard year for Canadians. It's been a hard year for global citizens. But obviously, as Canada's health minister, my heart's with my my fellow Canadians. What do you think, looking back, what, what's worked really well in Canada's response? I get asked this question all the time, and I, I, you know, I think the story's not written yet in terms of what's worked well and what hasn't worked well. And um, I don't know, um, you know, when this will happen, but I think that international study and that national review of what was uh, what worked well and what what didn't, both here in Canada and around the world, is a really important piece of work. Mm. But I feel like we're in the middle still, and it's hard to answer that question. I do know one thing that's worked that worked really well early on, and that was our, I think, very bold decision to change financial programs extremely quickly to help uh, keep people from financial despair as they made those really hard decisions to stay home and to furlough their businesses and their employees. And I think those economic measures saved lives. What about the uh, the cross political response, if I can put it that way? Satisfied for the most part, and particularly how the federal government and the provinces have uh, sort of had to not often at cross purposes, but from time to time, yes. Uh, about how that relationship has worked. Well, we live in a federation, and it's almost like thirteen small. Uh, countries, if you will, jurisdictions of healthcare delivery, that, that has made it challenging at times, because of course, we have a Canada Health Act. But uh, after that, provinces and territories have the full, <clears throat> the full jurisdiction and authority to deliver healthcare, and in fact, the responsibility to deliver healthcare to their own citizens. But we worked really, really well together by by and large. And you know, the federal government, um, and my colleagues and I, uh, in cabinet decided early on that it was important that we support the provinces and territories in this most important work and that it wasn't the time to quibble about who paid for what. And so, of course, as you know, the federal government, uh, we've borne the large portion of the uh, economic cost of responding to the pandemic. And we continue to do so for provinces and territories because uh, in our minds, it was about pulling together as a country, supporting Canadians through this really difficult time. You, you say in large measure, the, the story mm -hmm. is yet to be written about what really worked and what didn't work. But I, I think we know where uh, some of the failures have been. And, and to some extent, it, it, if there have been failures, they were uh, 
sometimes caused by where we were as a country. Uh, you know, successive governments, the dismantling of the pandemic early warning system, lack of vaccine manufacturing capability in Canada, a pandemic plan that was never fully tested. We've seen thousands of deaths in the long-term care homes. And I'm, you know, uh, how racialized Canadians have been affected and women have been affected and harder hit by the pandemic than other groups. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, looking ahead, how is your government planning to take those lessons and build a more resilient pandemic response for the next time around? Well, I think there's no question about the need, and I said this early on, to have bold investments in public health agencies across the country, at the federal level, obviously, but also at the provincial level, to ensure that we're doing the things that public health is really good at doing, both protecting health and preventing illness. And those two things go hand in hand in any public health agency. Um, it's public health is, a, you know, the sort of poor cousin of direct health care delivery. And I worked in public health for nine years, Peter, as you know, um, it's a fraction of most health care budgets. And yet they prevent so much illness and they protect Canadians against infectious diseases on a regular basis, including things like inspecting um, restaurants and service industry providers mm -hmm. like nail salons and hair salons and helping with uh, ensuring vaccination and all of that work often goes unseen. But I think the pandemic has elevated the work of public health in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. L let me raise with you a couple of specific things looking forward here. Uh, vaccinations are ramping up, uh, clearly a good thing. Still lots of concern around uh, the spread of variants and, and what that might mean for uh, successive waves and next waves. But let me ask about vaccine passports, proof of immunization that might facilitate international travel and free movement in Canada. And I know the government science advisor is preparing a report on vaccine passports and whether Canada should adopt them as some other countries are doing. What are the issues at play here and whether or not to implement vaccine passports? Right. Well, on the one hand, if the world, if the international community moves towards a proof of vaccination as an ability to enter um, countries and for, from an international travel perspective, it's very important that Canada understand what those um, those international requirements might be. And in fact, we, we know there are countries that ask for proof of immunization of other infectious diseases now. It's very important that Canada continue to be at the table in those conversations. But of course, on the other hand, um, there are all kinds of equity issues when we start talking about access to vaccines. For example, we know that uh, wealthier countries have had more rapid access, that there are other reasons why people might not be vaccinated, and, and those can be challenges in terms of equity. And so these are very uh, difficult uh, questions hmm. to answer. And I know the entire global community is grappling with how to restore international travel in a way that's safe for, for everyone. Okay. Um let me ask you a bit, and, I'm, and I'm, you, you may have had some discussion about this today, AstraZeneca, concerns in Europe, some countries uh, suspending the use after reports of blood clots in some patients. I know we, get it, we have a different batch of our AstraZeneca supply for this country, but uh, how concerned do we need to be about uh, those concerns about AstraZeneca in this country? You know, our regulators are not worried about the batches and doses of AstraZeneca that we're receiving here in Canada. It is indeed that different. And uh, the the Health Canada regulators have carefully reviewed not just the data on the vaccine itself, but where it's manufactured, indeed, right down to the lot or batch, as you refer to it. And so we're uh, confident 
uh, in the safety of AstraZeneca. And I will say also that part of the regulatory approval is the constant review of uh, adverse effects um, internationally, but certainly Canada-wide and provinces and territories regularly report uh, adverse effects up to the federal government, as they do with any other vaccine, by the way, so that we can monitor the safety of those vaccines lifetime. I got a, less than a minute left, but I want to give you the opportunity to answer this question. I mean, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty still ahead of us. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and it's perhaps an awkward question, but uh, like, how will you know when we've won, in, in your view, mm -hmm. how will you know when we've won the fight against COVID-19? What, what will it look like? Well, I think what it'll look like is that when we do begin to cautiously reopen parts of our uh, society that have been really challenging to reopen, like restaurants and uh, movie theaters and other, you know, uh, congregate sort of areas where people come together in big crowds, and we are able to do that with the degree of uh, safety and a feeling of safety, then we'll know that we've beat back. COVID-19. And, you know, that will take everybody getting vaccinated when your chance and your time arrives. It will also take making sure that we stay on any outbreak of COVID-19 as it arises and that we continue to really have our mind focused on protecting the most vulnerable in our communities, strengthening our workplace protections, strengthening our long-term care homes to ensure that everyone has the, the infection prevention control training and the supports needed to keep all of those settings safe. Health Minister Patty Haidu, uh, thanks for your time this evening. Take care. Thank you very much, Peter. Dr. Cora Constantinescu is a pediatric infectious disease specialist in Calgary. She joins me now. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you speaking with me. Nice to be here. Let's start with the one-year anniversary today of the declaration of this pandemic. Uh, let's start there. What, what's top of mind for you today? Well, it's an emotional day. <laughs> you think of what all this has meant for us, for me personally, my family, our country, the entire world. So many people have died. There's so much loss. Um, but there's also, I think, a palpable sense of hope. Now with over two and a half million doses of this vaccine administered to Canadians, and um, I know some of my family members have had the vaccine, and uh, soon I hope to send out my parents for it. Mm -hmm. So for sure, there is hope. We're seeing this specter of death and hospitalization start to lift from our society. Let's, it gives us a chance to reflect as, as well on, on, uh, on where we've come from. Um, what, did, what do you think our political and health leaders have done well over the past year in responding to the pandemic? Let's start there. Yeah, um, before the political leaders, I'll just say how well Canadians overall have done, because I think our society has been so good and kind, and people have really listened the answer to, you know, the call to inaction, to stay at home, wear masks, and um, they've given up a lot of personal freedoms, and because of that, we've had so many more, so many fewer deaths than we would have had. Um, I think overall, though, our political leaders and our health agencies have done a lot of things uh, well. Um, our vaccine choices were very well made. So now we have four, soon most likely five of the seven vaccines that they chose. So even in those early stages, they chose really well. And I can't speak nationally, but for sure in Alberta, our testing and public health measures have worked really well. We have fast turnaround time on tests, broadly implemented, very adaptable. Mm -hmm. So, for example, now we test for variants, which is why this, the testing in combination with all the health measures, um, is why we have not been overwhelmed by these variants. 
Let's and I think our contact tracing was good too in the beginning. Let's talk about preparation. You, you, uh, there, there's lots of evidence that Canada wasn't prepared for this with no early warning system in place anymore, no domestic vaccine manufacturing capability, no well-rehearsed pandemic plan, even though uh, we developed one after the SARS outbreak. Uh, as an infectious disease specialist, what do you want to see moving forward? Because it's a pretty safe bet we'll, we'll have another pandemic and more waves of COVID-19 as well. Yeah, I think you're right on. So, you know, this isn't over yet. Um, and I agree there are a few things uh, long term and short term. So long term, for sure, emergency preparedness. We struggled in the beginning. Um, issues with supply of PPE, just local and national production, definitely an issue. Um, and then the protection of our vulnerable people in long-term care was not fast enough. So this is something for sure that we need to improve on. Identify who the vulnerable people are and very quickly, so high speed of initial response needs to be there to protect them. I also think that, especially because this isn't over yet, um, there's also been a lot of communication um, hurdles that we've had, which at the end of the day changes behavior and affects how people comply. So, for example, you know, um, everybody's been making such an effort to adhere to public policy and we see change frequently and that can be disheartening. Um, and we can definitely do better at communication and we have to because this isn't over yet. So with our previous communication, when you know there were wild swings in recommendations and then the response was often defensive focused on correcting misinformation to the point where i think people felt victims of public policy instead of seeing it there to protect them and we now now and we're seeing more of this that that frustration comes out of fear and comes out of um, a sense of unsafety so we need to arm our local leaders within people's communities to get out and address this um, inconsistent messaging um, by, by building common ground and trust. So this is really important. We almost need a public relations network of local champions right. to connect with people and validate their emotions and struggles. There, there is a sense, you touched on it, there's a sense that uh, perhaps a corner will soon be turned with the increased vaccinations. But uh, look, there, here we are into year one, but now uh, pushing into year two now. There are still variants of the virus circulating and, and building. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you think lies ahead for us now and how quickly we might be back to something, uh, I'm not going to say normal, but something closer to normal. Yeah, so we cannot get ahead of ourselves because um, it's not over yet, but we're definitely on our way. And, um, and, uh, and we're very close. And... Um, What's really important is the speed of the vaccine rollout and people's readiness to take this vaccine. So we've heard a lot of concerns from people about what vaccine to take and when to take it. Take it as soon as it's available to you and take the first one that's available because that makes a huge difference. In time, the lifting of restrictions will come as we vaccinate more people, as we drive the numbers down, and um, as we remove this burden of hospitalization and death from our health system and our society. And we will be able to go back and you know, no longer physically distance and no longer mask. Even though I have to tell you that as a mother of three kids in school, I have enjoyed our relatively virus-free lives in the last year. Uh, but this all will come um, when our vaccine um, numbers and our coverage will go up. Okay, uh, I should point out, you, you talked about uh, 
taking whatever vaccines available to you. Should point out you're with the Vaccine Hesitancy Clinic as well, so you've got lots of That's experience right. on that front. Um, look, we've we've seen a lot of our. Let's finish on this. Some major changes in behavior around personal hygiene and masking and so on because of the pandemic. What behaviors do you think we should be prepared to carry forward? That's a really interesting question. I sure hope that people carry forward the hand hygiene. We know, I mean, look at the fact that we don't see any influenza. So there are very powerful ways to protect infection, um, especially again from people who are vulnerable. So I hope the hand hygiene moves forward. And to some extent, the idea of presenteeism, so people being at work when they're sick would be great to not continue moving forward even once this pandemic is over. So this idea that when you're sick, maybe there are ways you can work from home so that you're not exposing other people, especially patients um, in hospitals and in other clinical settings, is really powerful. So for me, those two for sure should move forward. All right, Dr. Cora Constantinescu, uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Time now for our panel of political commentators. Susan Smith's a liberal commentator. Tim Powers, a conservative commentator. And Tom Parkin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Uh, Susan, let's talk about the one-year anniversary of the pandemic, a solemn anniversary. But let's focus a little bit on our political leaders and how they've responded to the crisis and how well they've done at putting the pandemic response ahead of, ahead of scoring political points. What have you seen? Well, it is a tough anniversary for Canadian pe Canadians, Peter. There's no doubt it's been a hard year and we've lost a lot of very important people in the country. Uh, but our, the one thing we have learned, I think, is that our politicians are capable of putting politics aside and doing their jobs in terms of what's best for the, com the country. Uh, the partisanship sni sniping at the beginning of the pandemic was parked and we saw premiers collaborating. We even saw Doug Ford say he liked working with uh Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and the Prime Minister and that they were all working very hard. So I think it's what we've learned or the lesson to be taken out of this is that this country works and it can work and that our politicians are capable of being less partisan and doing what's right. Yeah, Tim, it's a, it's a delicate line to walk. Have they walked it properly? Because it's not, you know, for opposition parties, it's not about letting the government off the hook on everything, but it's a delicate balance, isn't it? It's a delicate balance. They haven't walked it perfectly every day, but I think they've all done better than we thought they would initially. Um, Andrew Scheer was not was not great in the early days of this, and he corrected himself. Mr. O'Toole's had a couple of moments. Uh, the prime minister even has had some some partisanship flare ups, uh, as have some premiers. But by and large, I think uh, they have all worked as collaboratively as possible in the environment in which we live. And uh, we'll see, Peter, if this bon homme continues after the <laughs> pandemic is passed. Oh, man, a very, very nice words. Tom, Tom, what have you seen as this unfolds? Well, it is that delicate balance. Uh, the opposition has a job to do, even if it's in a pandemic and uh, in the recession of a pandemic. And, and that is to challenge the government to be the best it can, especially in these circumstances. And I, I think, uh, you know, really, Jagmeet Singh did extremely well and has done extremely well over the last year because uh, he tried to not be negative. He tried to uh, put forward positive proposals. So in the very beginning, when there was talk about, you know, how much unemployment there was going to be, um, he said, listen, you know, EI is not going to be enough. There was talk about extending EI. He said, that's not going to be enough. We need something broader because there are a lot of people who do not qualify right. for EI who are going to get affected. And, and, you know, to give Mr. Trudeau his credit, 
um, he said, yeah, that's right. And CERB was created because of that positive contribution okay. and thankfully reciprocation. And the same with Q's, uh, the, the wage support program originally put in a 10% and Singh with small business and labor movement said, you know, it should be higher. And that was eventually supported and, and later to correct the, the okay, way so they, in which the, the, the support for rent, commercial rent was, was organized. They so get pretty, positives. Okay, some positives. All right, uh, let's talk, Susan, about allegations of sexual misconduct against senior leaders of the Department of National Defense. We've learned this week now the Prime Minister says his office knew of the allegations in 2018 but never got the details from the military ombudsman, so that's why there was no investigation. He also uh, suggested Conservatives back in 2015 investigated certain allegations against uh, General Vance but still appointed him CDS. Look, what needs to happen to convince members members of the Canadian forces that the government governments are serious about dealing with misconduct in the military. Yeah, I think it's time, uh, Peter, that there are things that have been put into place like op honor, but it's clearly there, there's been a gap when it comes to the reporting uh, or the comfort in people reporting and things getting actioned on it. Um, when it comes to General Vance, there were allegations, but no detail and not enough detail to be able to do anything about it. It's clear that's what happened. But um, the, it has to change. There's no question. Things like this need to be investigated when people come forward. People need to feel comfortable coming forward. And hopefully we get to the time and the place where these kinds of terrible incidents stop. Tim, to be clear, if the outside organization had been created, uh, which the prime minister is suggesting he will now do to investigate these things, if that had been created after Justice, uh, Justice Deschamps, after her inquiry, and she recommended that, people with complaints about their superiors would have had a place to go. But since there exists no outside agency, what responsibility did the government have to ensure there was some sort of investigation? I, I, look, I think this is, uh, to be fair, it's it's a problem that different governments have had. But ultimately, Peter, the problem is in the military culture and approach uh, and governments of different stripes refusal to address that or, or hoping the issue go away. I, I do think Mr. Sajjan is in a little bit of trouble here because his answers uh, about how he dealt with the military ombudsman and uh, how material was brought forward to PCO and the prime minister's office doesn't reflect very well on a government that's uh, focused a lot of its energy on addressing uh, harassment and, uh, and issues as such. But you know, a bigger thing here, Peter, it does appear, uh, regardless of government's consternation, uh, that uh, people within the military are having their Me Too movement. And yep. hopefully... Uh, that in the end will be a very positive thing for bringing forward cultural change in the military. It shouldn't have to happen that way, but it appears we're in that moment for the Canadian Armed Forces. Tom, let me hear from you on this. Well, I don't think it's cultural change. I think it's structural change that was needed. That's what the commission in 2015 recommended by setting up a uh, oversight body that could uh, escalate uh, these complaints to. And we've seen the concerns, the complaints of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the CAF absolutely skyrocket in the last few years, while Minister Sajan and the Prime Minister Saddam's report did nothing. Um, and frankly, you know, what, so having done nothing, then we're not only, um, you know, had done nothing, but then we're presented or presented with the opportunity to see specific information, specific and what the military okay. ombudsman said was actionable, information about a uh, about general advance the, the formal cbs and the the response of the minister was i don't want to see it um all right so apparently it becomes a big problem when you don't when you turn back and you want to call, call yourself 
a progressive. It sounds feminist like finally. That, that sounds didn't, like that didn't support these women. Sounds like finally change may be coming on that file. Uh, Tim, let me come back to you. Conservative convention opens a week from now, and heading into it, lots of talk about Aaron O'Toole's poor polling numbers, caucus unrest, the reopening of the abortion debate, all that with a potential of a snap election. So, how deep are Aaron O'Toole's problems, Tim, and how costly could they be for a party with Justin Trudeau still refusing to rule out a snap election? Well, Peter, you and I have been covering conservative conventions almost since the time of John A. Macdonald. Um, and I, I can't remember a, a moment before a conservative convention where the conservatives were in power or not, to use a good Newfoundland expression uh, with a Newfoundland painting behind me, when the backside was deemed to be out of her uh, for the party. Um, O'Toole has some challenges. And I, and I, no Tim, 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 I don't think the term uses the word backside, does it? But uh, well, uh, Peter, I'm not always polite. For I, know, the audience, I know, I understand that, and you should. Sorry, and, and, and I should, uh, as, as I should. But but look, this is the normal noise before convention. O'Toole's challenge is to figure out what the real problems are. So before every convention, there is usually some saber rattling from social conservatives who use conventions to highlight issues of concern for them. If I'm O'Toole, the one thing I am maybe a bit concerned about is the uh, apparent anonymous caucus sources who are right. leaking frustrations. That's what he's got to pay attention right, to. Susan, we'll see how that plays out. Susan, how big of a problem does Mr. O'Toole have? It's a really big problem for Mr. O'Toole because we're in a minority government situation and we could be in an election in less than, you know, less than a year. So I think he's in trouble. He does. He has not won the hearts and minds of the Conservative Party. And he's going into a convention where, the, as Tim says, the social conservatives, there's a whole army of them that are doing saber rattling and they've taken over the delegate spots. And for the people at home, this is a virtual convention. It means so many more people can participate than yeah. would normally participate. 5,500 5, have signed up. Yeah. So he, I don't think Aaron O'Toole controls the agenda going into this uh, convention. Right. And that is a problem for the leader of a party. Uh, quickly, uh, final comments to you, Tom Pargan. Well, I think the Conservatives, Mr. O'Toole's problems aren't, aren't just Mr. O'Toole. The times are not kind right now to Conservatives in many ways. I, I think people expect government to lead the, re, uh, the, re, the economic recovery. They expect government to be involved and uh, to be helping industries get back on their feet. And um, if you're a libertarian, laissez-faire, uh, let government do nothing kind of Conservative, um, what can you possibly offer in these situations? I mean, I can see what Mr. Trudeau might say. I can think of what Mr. Singh might say, but get government out of the way and cut taxes. All right. I don't think that's what Canadians want to hear. I have to leave it at that. Uh, thank you all for your time this week. Uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. That is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.